0: go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to uh, Mark. I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, 24 through 30. It's an odd little story, and in in Matthew it's been a, it has been expanded a bit. We'll, we'll come back to um, a little bit about uh, what Matthew says about this episode because it clarifies a few things uh, for us but in mark in mark chapter seven we read the story of the syrophoenician woman and this would be uh, someone who is is from the upper coastal regions of, of the land of israel in um, as we'll see in in matthew's gospel he refers to her as a canaanite which is quite interesting because if you think about your uh, reading your, your Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites were essentially the enemies of Israel, right? Who were, uh, they were in the land. They were the ones who were going to be run out um, and defeated by the Israelites. But Matthew calls this woman a Canaanite. And uh, then Jesus goes and, and casts out an unclean spirit from her daughter. So uh, let's read uh, Mark chapter 7, 24 through 30. Uh, what I'd like to do is um, is discuss I'd, I'd like to look at kind of what's going on in chapter 7 of Mark in general unless we understand the first century world uh, of the time and specifically the Jewish world we won't understand what's going on in, in Mark chapter 7 as a whole the whole thing uh, so we have uh, we have at the beginning of it the, the uh, Jesus's is pounding on the Pharisees about observing the traditions rather than the word of God. Uh, We have all these things going on, but these are all set within the first century Jewish context, and and when we we understand what's going on there, what he does, his actions then begin to make a lot more sense. So chapter 7, verse 24, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs but she answered him yes lord but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs and he said to her for this uh, because of this or for this statement you may go your way the demon has left your daughter and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone if we recall the previous two chapter two sections of the chapter We'll recall that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. He rebukes them for finding a provision in the customs, in the customs of the elders, uh, that would allow them to avoid helping their parents. So basically what they would do is they would, uh, they would surrender all that they had to the temple, and they would say, this is Korban, this is a, this is a gift, And then they were not under obligation to, they were no longer under obligation to take care of their parents. They had invalidated the the word of the Lord, uh, which had said, honor your father and your mother. And uh, they had, and and at the heart of it, meant taking care of them if they are in need. Uh, They had done this, and and he was saying, "Look, look, you are invalidating the word of God with your traditions. Second, he moves on to the multitude. He, he calls the multitude to himself, and he speaks about defilement. Now, in our world, we don't think a whole lot about defilement. But in, in, the, in the first century Jewish world, they're thinking about what is clean and what is unclean. And they're always thinking about themselves, the clean, versus the Gentiles, who are the unclean. And as always, if we read these texts without understanding the mindset of of the Jewish first century, then we will misunderstand what's going on. And even if these sections, like the section I just read, seems totally unrelated to the section that went before, even if they seem unrelated, we should back up, we should stop, and we should say, how are these related? Because Mark is not simply stringing these passages together Uh, in a a totally unrelated way. Chances are we are reading it incorrectly. Now, in the the first part of chapter 7, Jesus had done a remarkable thing, a truly revolutionary thing. He had undermined the traditions by putting his finger on the true source of uncleanness. Indeed, the problem was the heart and is the heart. The problem was more than skin deep. All uncleanness arises from the heart, he says, and washings, no amount of washings, will help. He doesn't overtly <laughs> condemn the purity laws and the traditions, but he subtly, subtly undermines them by implying that the washings themselves have replaced what they pointed to. In the minds of the Pharisees, they had, they had become caught up in the washings themselves, not understanding that they referred to the defilement that must be purified uh, that comes out of the heart that sin is a defilement that must be purified now it's possible that if the pharisees had had a deep awareness of the symbolic significance of their washings and recognized that they pointed to the sin that needed needed to be cleansed that jesus might not have given them such a hard time it's hard to know but i suspect however uh, that Jesus' objections were not actually objections to the washings themselves, although that may seem to be the case, but to something more significant. And that is often the case with these stories in the Gospels. It was about, again, what time is it? Okay, so uh, follow me on this, because I think it, this is very important. We often will look at at what Jesus does, like, why you why do you wash your hands, right? This is silly, and we think of this as, like, this is, this is outward. Uh, what Jesus is basically giving us is something uh, inward and true and spiritual. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. The question for Jesus and, and what he is trying to get at is that the kingdom has, of God has arrived, and things are changing. The announcement of the kingdom of God with the announcement comes a change, not only in the, in the world at large, but in, in Jewish life itself. It was not simply, you guys are doing all this external stuff, when what really matters is what's on the inside. Of course, that, that, that also is true, but that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at when he's, when he's telling these stories, or when Mark is getting, when he's telling these stories. It is not that Jesus is imposing some new set of moral requirements upon them. Jesus himself had said, All the law is summed up in this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? These, these are not new. They come from the scriptures. These are, these are scriptural quotations. But in Jesus... This now, the loving, your, loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor, now takes on a whole new meaning when he brings the kingdom of God and brings about the new covenant. This is what the stories are about. He is not helping people to become more spiritual and less ritualistic. It seems that way on the surface, but that is not what's going on. When we read this text at a, at a cursory level, we might think, that he's just saying, what matters is the inside, all this stuff on the outside doesn't matter, You you don't have to wash your hands, and he's just kind of throwing all that away, but I don't think that's it. What I think he is getting at is related to the first century Jewish world. When he declares all foods clean, this is not simply, and this is what he has done earlier in the chapter. So we, we, had, uh, we read last week that he says what goes into the body doesn't defile the body, but what comes out of the body, what comes out of the heart, that's what defiles a man. And thereby he declared, declared all foods clean. By doing so, he has not simply changed the rules. He's not simply saying, okay, guys, you've been doing this all wrong. God's now changing the rules. It's not, now you can eat anything. That's not what he's saying. These food laws, the laws of Kashrut, are one of the covenantal markers of who will be counted among the people of God along with circumcision and Sabbath when God vindicates his people. Listen. This is very important. It's very important for understanding Paul. It's also uh, important for understanding the Gospels. The food laws... All this stuff about not eating this and eating this, washing your hands, uh, not washing your hands, these are covenantal markers of who will be counted among the people of God when he vindicates his people. So how do you know if you're among the people of God? How do you know you are the elect? That you're in covenant with God? You circumcised? Do you keep the food laws? Do you keep the Sabbath? This is how you know. And so when God when God comes back to vindicate his people, those who are doing these things will be vindicated. In essence, are you keeping the Torah? This is what matters. If not, then you are not part of the covenant. The purity laws, the food laws, the Sabbath observance, circumcision indicate who is and who isn't in the covenant. Think about that for a minute, because that's not how we typically view what what the Jews are doing in the first century. I I think that's exactly what's going on. It's as simple as this. Though we have read these texts as a sort of, of work salvation type things, where we think the Jews are just trying to work their way into heaven or whatnot, that's not exactly what's going on. They didn't get into the covenant by keeping the laws. They showed that they were in covenant with God by keeping the laws. And though there are disputes among the Jews themselves about how to do this and how to do that, there is no dispute about who is in the covenant and what it means to be in the covenant. There are certain things that those in covenant with God do. You eat the right foods. You don't fellowship with those who are Gentiles. You are circumcised. You obey the Sabbath. And if you don't do these things, you're not in the covenant or there's a good chance you're not and you better, you may not be a true Jew. And that, this, is, this is how they're looking at it. Well, what is the problem then? What is the problem then that Jesus is getting at if, if he's not after uh, busting up their rituals? What is he trying to change? What is he saying that needs to be changed now? Jesus is saying, that these things, the things that separated Jew from Gentile, are passing away with the old creation. Now, listen to this. this is, I think this is extremely important. When you read Paul, think about this. Jesus is saying, and Paul then will later say, the things that separate Jew from Gentile, and what are those things? In the ancient world, circumcision, Sabbath, food laws, These are the markers of what it means to be a Jew, and they're also the markers of what separates you from the Gentiles. That's what the law was intended to do, is to separate. What he is saying is that that is part of the old world, the old creation. What Jesus is bringing is new creation, and all things are becoming new, including these laws. They are taking on new meaning, and he's going to fill them full of meaning. These old identity markers were for the old world, for the old creation. The new identity marker or markers were now different. They were being changed. They were being centered upon the Messiah himself. Faith in the Messiah replaces Sabbath, circumcision, food laws. Faith in the Messiah. That's what counts in the new age, in the new world, in the world that is to come. That's what matters. Jesus and his ways are the new identity markers. How do you know that you're in the covenant? You know you're in the covenant because you have faith in the Messiah, in Jesus the Messiah. This is it. And I, I suggest if we, if we read Paul this way, and we read the Gospels in this way, we will see that even though, yes, Jesus is, is coming to them and saying, look guys, you're doing all this stuff, and you're on the wrong track, he's not simply condemning them for their rituals. He's condemning them because they don't recognize that in him and in his coming is dawning a new age. The new age is dawning. The new world is coming. The new creation is coming. And these people are missing it. And they are hung up in their separation from the Gentiles and not seeing that now is the time that the Gentiles are going to come into the people of God. This This is exactly what's going on. This will also help us to understand the present passage. Jesus, in, in doing what he is doing, in, earlier in chapter 7, has just sealed his own demise by tinkering with the symbols of covenant membership. What is the, the, one of the main symbols of covenant membership? What you eat and who you eat with. right? What you eat and who you eat with. We see this later in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter is not wanting to go into the house of Cornelius, right? He's not wanting to go into the house. God says he sees this thing coming down from heaven. It has clean. It has unclean on it. He says, eat it. God says to Peter, eat it. He said, no, I've never eaten this stuff. What's the point? The point is not you can eat new foods, and God's now telling you you can eat everything. The point is that Jew and Gentile are being joined into one, into one body, the clean and the unclean. The unclean represents the Gentile world world, as we'll see in in uh, Ezra. Ezra mentions this. Jesus had just sown his, the seeds of his own demise by tinkering with one of the symbols of covenant membership. It's like changing the order of service in a Baptist church, right? You don't do it. Right? Do not do it. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> actually it's, it's far more serious there may not even be an equivalent to it but it's something like let's say you go to the Amish and you tell them the time has come God has said that there's a new world dawning and it's the new world of the automobile and they say you go pound sand buddy right? in fact you keep on like this and we're going to string you up it's very similar, to, it's something that's not, that doesn't quite get at it, but it's something like that. You go to the Amish and you say, time to shave your beards, and it's time to, for you to get a, an automobile and start driving it. Right. It's something very ser- it, it's like that. These are bedrock assumptions and bedrock practices that if you mess with them, you will incur the wrath of the Jewish people especially the revolutionaries, especially the leaders, which is what he's, this is, this is who is in view here. It's not the people that are objecting to this in general. They will later, and they will, they will come to the, the defense of the leaders who are saying crucify him, but it, it's mostly the leaders who are supposed to be shepherding this people. They will say, this is not going to fly on our watch. When Jesus speaks of uncleanness and cleanness in the previous passage, he is changing the boundary markers relating to who now the covenant blessings are going to go to. So think about this. This is very important. I know I keep saying that, but uh, this will change the way you view Scripture, the way you read your New Testament. For that is what the purity laws and the food laws are doing. They are boundary markers, identity markers, indicating separation. The very idea of holiness, when when God comes to Israel and He says, you will be holy as I am holy, what's He saying? Separate yourself. You are to be distinct, you are to be apart from the world, the Gentiles. That's what He's saying. Now, do we say things like that? Absolutely, we say things like that. There's nothing wrong with the idea. It's that they did not understand what the time? What what time it was? The time was, uh, the time times were changing, and it was now time for those barriers to be broken down between Jew and Gentile, and the two to be joined into one body. These thi- the whole the notion of holiness itself is not a bad thing. This is why Peter can reappropriate the scriptures and say, "But like the one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior." Right. Is he talking about somehow working your way to heaven? No. Be holy. This is what's expected of the people of God, and this is what was expected of the Jews. It's just that they did not recognize that things were changing, that the scriptures were coming to fulfillment. Be separate. Be distinct. Be set apart. Do not be like the world. This is what's going on. They rejected his message that the time had come for the old way of being Israel— come to an end. That the fullness of time had come, that God had sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem Israel, who stood condemned under their own law, as lawbreakers. And this is the mystery of the gospel. All of this, this way of looking at what's going on in Jesus' ministry in relation to the Jews of his time also helps us, as I mentioned, to understand Paul. So when Paul in, in Ephesians begins to talk about the mystery of the gospel, that which has been hidden in times past, what he is referring to is the same thing that Jesus is referring to or the same thing that Jesus is actually bringing about in his own death and resurrection that God is breaking down that wall of separation that was separating Jew and Gentile and joining them together in one body, the church. Now, Paul has this more nuanced, and Paul has this in, in a different way. He says it in a different way, but he's saying essentially the same thing. A seismic shift in the covenantal boundaries is taking place. What sets you apart as in the covenant is being changed. Now, let me summarize, and then we're going to look at this uh, Gentile woman and her demon-possessed daughter. Number one, Israel found herself living in a Greek world that sought to press it into its mold. This is the mold of compromise, of impurity, of violating the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic law. These covenant stipulations are identity markers that set Israel apart as in the covenant. Jesus arrives on the scene and begins to tear down these identity markers that have kept Israel separate from the nations. Except these had actually, they had partially succeeded, but they had not dealt with the problem of Adam's sin and their own sin, and this is what Jesus is bringing. He's bringing a solution The thing to which these these covenant stipulations had pointed to, the problem of Adam's sin and everyone else's sin. What Jesus is announcing is the way that sin will be defeated in his people, and he will go to the cross to accomplish it. I suggest if we, if we kind of keep that in mind as we're moving toward the climax of, of the book of Mark, we will better understand how he's putting in place or how Mark is, is putting this in place and bringing us to that point of climax, the, the cross and the resurrection. That what Jesus is doing in seed form within the Gospels, he will then bring to a climax in his death and resurrection. Now back to our text. Let's look at the story of, of the Syrophoenician woman. First, we should note that, that one, Matthew refers to her as a Canaanite woman. And I mentioned that these are the inhabitants of the land that are really the, the enemies of God. Right, they're, they're thought to be the enemies of God, of, of Israel. They should not be in the land. So Israel is going to drive them out. They're supposed to drive them out. Of course, they, this, uh, We can look at that, but they they fail in their, their job that they're given. Jesus is going into a region where many Gentiles live. According to Matthew, the disciples are with him, and they discourage his interaction with the woman who comes out to get healing for her daughter. Our text says in verse 24 that Jesus was attempting to hide from everyone. Now, why would he want to hide? I think it has to do with what he has just said. He has gone into dangerous territory, not into the area of Tyre and Sidon, but the the territory of suggesting that all foods are now clean, and he is in hiding. You don't go tinkering with the covenant stipulations. That's what he's hiding from. This was unfathomable. I suggest this is going on, and this is why he's hiding. Because of his fame, though, he could not be hidden. He is needing to escape the heat that he is feeling from the recent confrontation, confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes. A woman, and Mark is very clear on this, he says a Gentile, he actually says a Greek, which is a, a, a metonym for a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman, comes to him and falls at his feet, Mark is intentionally telling us that she is a Gentile, and this makes sense in light of what we've seen going on in the text before, right? Why, why would this matter in light of what we've just seen? Times are changing, what time is it? It is time for the Gentiles to begin to come in, but not quite yet, and this is what Jesus is getting at. Now this is not a new thing that he's doing. She keeps begging of him, asking of him, um, if he would cast out the demon, the unclean spirit out of her daughter. He, this is not something new that Jesus is doing. We've seen already that he's been casting out demons already. He's been among the Gentiles. He went on to the other side of the sea, and he, was, uh, he cast out the legion of demons, ran them into the swine, and then ran them into the, the sea. We might think, well, this is just another one of those exorcisms again. What does this have to do with what, what's new about this? We, we read through Mark and we think, ah, he's going to throw out another demon. He's going to cast out another demon. This unclean spirit, that unclean spirit. What do these, um, what's different here? This is not just another exorcism. The significance of this exorcism is related to the Jew-Gentile relations and how Jesus is making a way for Gentiles to come into the new covenant. It is an enactment of God's cleansing of the uncleanness of the Gentiles. Those purity laws were never intended to be the cure for uncleanness, but to point to one who would have the cure. These were, however, supposed to be the problem, the uncleanness of the Gentile world. And these food law, these food laws, these cleanliness laws, they were to be a constant reminder of their set-apartness. Listen to Ezra, what, the way that he speaks about the Gentile world. Now, this is after Ezra and the and Judah the Judahites had come back from exile and they had taken they had taken foreign wives he says now our god what shall we say after this for we have forsaken your commandments which you have commanded by your servants the prophets saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleannesses of the peoples of the land with their abominations which they have filled from it uh, filled it from end to end and with their uncleannesses You hear uncleanness, 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 right? What's in the Gentile world? Uncleanness. That's what you are, that's what any first century Jew and and for that matter a fifth century Jew BC would have been thinking about the world. Ezra is saying that uncleanness is and a distinguishing feature of the nations. What does Jesus do with them? He abolishes them, but not simply because they are bad in themselves. The law had a role, and these purity laws had a role, to keep them apart until his coming, Paul will say. He himself will purify Israel and the nations through his sacrificial death. This story, the story of the exorcism of the the demon that's in the daughter, is a foreshadowing of what will happen on a larger scale when God's work is completed by Jesus on the cross. But there's something that's seemingly disturbing about this text in the analogy that Jesus uses to describe the Jews versus the Gentiles. What does it mean for Jesus to say in, re- in reply to her begging for the healing of her daughter, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs the answer of the woman, that even the little dogs under the table eat from the crumbs of the children, give us an idea about what he's talking about. It may, may seem to us today that he is simply uh, demeaning her, that he's cutting her down, calling her a dog, and he may be in some sense, but, but I don't think this is an insult. I suggest that it is, it is doing something like this, Yes, he is referring to the Gentiles as dogs, but these are not, they're not wild dogs. You say, well, it's, it's bad enough to be called a dog, but, but these are the little, these are the pet dogs. And he's using this analogy of eating from the table and comparing it with what's going on in his own ministry. He's giving an analogy not to insult her, but to clarify to her and also to his hearers what his mission is he is saying that the food that he has to give is not yet and that's the key it's not yet for the gentiles this is clarified in our passage but um, more so in the parallel passage in mark and matthew in matthew he explicitly says that his mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel it is a matter of fulfilling his calling For him to be the true servant of Isaiah, he has to bring Jacob out of exile. Israel, that is his calling. It is a matter of fulfilling his calling. For him to go off prematurely into the Gentile world would be to thwart the mission uh, into which he has been called. To become the servant, as Mark will say, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a divine priority in Jesus' ministry and also in the ministry of those in the first century. Remember what Paul says. He would go into a town and he would say, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. This is a matter of fulfilling the vocation, the calling that was given to Jesus and also to first century Israel they were to be the ones through whom the world was reached. In other words, it was always Israel's calling to take the word of God to the nations. For Israel to be the light of the world, and Jesus, through his own actions and through his his own calling as a new Israel, was going to fulfill that role of Israel to the nations. In his response to the intelligent response of the woman, we see his heart. He longs for the day when his work will be accomplished and the Gentiles can be brought in. His heart is for the world, but things must be done in their proper order for the sake of Israel's divine calling, to be a royal priesthood for the world. It is the vocation of the servant of the Lord that Jesus himself is fulfilling. And the vocation of the servant of the Lord is the vocation that the new Israel, Jesus' disciples, will also be tasked with, as well as uh, when he commissions them to go into all the world and make disciples. They are the twelve. They are the new Israel who will then be sent out into the nations. But for Jesus, it is this calling to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to commission them for worldwide proclamation that takes precedence here. In Isaiah 49, the first servant song in which the servant actually says something. He says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, and in whom I will be glorified. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back... Jacob to him, so that Israel may be gathered to him. You hear? The divine priority. This is why the servant was formed, to bring back Jacob to him, so that Israel was gathered to him. But the same passage goes on and says, Indeed, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. No, it's bigger. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus knew that this was his job. This was his calling as representative of Israel. But even here we see the divine order to bring back Jacob to him and then to become a light to the Gentiles. And this is the, the order that that persisted Throughout the first century, remarkably, Paul himself quotes this very same passage in, in Isaiah 49 to sum up his own ministry. Read cha- uh, 2 Corinthians chapters five and six. At the end of uh, end of five and the beginning of six, he sums up his mission, his ministry, the ministry of the apostles as the ministry of reconciliation. But it's the ministry of fulfilling Genesis 49, uh, Isaiah 49, the uh, vocation of the servant. His vocation was to fulfill the vocation given to Israel to be the servant. We too, then. And this, some of these passages don't have a lot of, you know, it's it's not like we can say from every passage, hey, go and do this, okay, this says, this says this is what we're to do, go do this. However, if we think about, think about what's going on in in the larger ministry and mission of Jesus, and then in the, in the mission that he gives to his disciples. And then we say, are we included in this? The answer is obviously yes. If that is the case, then we too take on the mission to take the kingdom of God into the world. Right? This, is, this is the application of this passage. We in the Messiah... Take on that vocation, that role, that calling to be the light of the world. Jesus says it to, his, to everyone who's reading the book of Matthew. You are the light of the world, right? You are the light of the world. This, is, this really sums up what the Gospels are about in this sense. Jesus is going to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why is he doing that? Because this is what is necessary to bring Adam, all of mankind, out of exile. This is what is necessary. And we see the beginnings of this in the, in the story of the Syrophoenician woman. It's not that this is, this is taking place um, uh, in, in full. But this is a foreshadowing of that which is going to take place in uh, in his death and resurrection. This woman and her daughter would receive a foretaste of what God, through the cross of Christ, was going to do. As Jesus dies on behalf of Israel, as her representative, he would bring the blessings through the new Israel, Jesus and his disciples, to the world.